pretty good. Need coffee? You can go get. You, you're never gonna offend me. <laughs> so if you ever have to get up and go and do whatever you gotta do, as a kid in church, I always thought everybody's looking at me when I do that. But I did it anyway, and look how I turned out. So I'm just kidding. <laughs> Be afraid. <clears throat> okay. So. Here we are in Mark, and we're making our way through. <clears throat> if you have not been here, um, you're just you're missing out on a lot of fun, um, at least from my perspective, with Mark's gospel. And try to do this in three minutes. Three minutes. We started Mark's gospel. Remember, Mark's gospel is the shortest of all four. The gospels tell about Jesus' life, his ministry, what Jesus was about, who Jesus is, and it's always from the vantage point of the evangelist or the writer of that gospel. Mark is probably, in my opinion, the template that Matthew, Luke, and John used to write their gospels. <clears throat> Mark got his information firsthand. Church history tells us from Peter. And so Mark is including things in his document to tell you about Jesus, about what Jesus did, and for you to respond to that person that Mark is telling you about. All the Gospels kind of overlap in some way, and they, they tell the story of Jesus like a biography. But <clears throat> the evangelist, or the writer of the Gospel, um, is writing with an agenda. And, and so you just need to know that when you go to the text, that they have a purpose. And there's this divine human pers uh, spectrum in which God used the human author to write down the revelation of God. They have another agenda They're, during the uh, early church, so post-Acts, when you get beyond the stories and the events that are in Acts, and when you get past the events that are in Paul's letters, you get past the writing of Revelation, right? And you get later in time. Jesus is uh, born around 84, somewhere in there, around 81. That's where we start that timeline. And Jesus is crucified around AD 33, somewhere in there. And as you move further into the events of the early church, as you move, move further into uh, time in that first hundred years, is that the church starts to gain traction, but they also have some things that cause them to look weird to the rest of society. They call each other brother and sister. So they think that they are having incest relationships. They don't bow down to the gods of the empire, the Roman Empire, so they're called atheists. The Christians do this thing called an agape love feast where they, they eat together and they take communion and they do in remembrance of what Jesus told them on the, the night that Jesus was betrayed and that Jesus was going to be crucified. Uh, they do these things and so the outsiders looking in think they're really strange and think they're really weird. It's kind of weird to think that the first people that were called atheists were actually the Christians. Uh, but that was because they did not believe uh, that, that the Roman gods and all the myths about those gods, pantheism and polythe polytheism, were, were accurate or true. And so it's in that world later when Christians start to be persecuted that the gospel writers start to codify. They start to bring together the writings and the teachings and the life of Jesus because they all thought Jesus was coming back any moment. And so when you're living in that world, you know, as the apostles start to die off, as they start to be martyred, you can't go down the street and talk to Peter no more. You can't go down the street and talk to the people that were first eyewitnesses of the resurrection, physical resurrection, the real resurrection of a person rising from the dead and ascending into the, into the sky. 
you can't go down the street. So that's, these gospels are formed, they're codified, they're brought together uh, for people to, to read. And so that's why when you come to the text, there's an agenda. And a lot of times you'll see within the gospels, they're writing to people that are probably being persecuted. And so you're going to hear hints of that as you move through the gospels, these warnings and these things that overlap into the lives of real people that they were uh, suffering. Now, we, we have a lot of inheritance in our American culture of reading Bible stories, reading parables, reading uh, proof texts or Bible verses just to use them for make us feel better. And that's okay. That's not bad. Uh, there's actually, I remember when I graduated high school, somebody gave me, one of the people at church gave me this book, and it was like, you could look up uh, any, you know, whatever you're feeling in the moment, and you could look it up, and they'd have a Bible verse. And it's not bad stuff. Uh, but a lot of times when we miss the context, we're going to miss the fuller depth of what the scriptures are actually revealing to us, what God wanted to reveal through the human author to you and I, so that we could get a better, clearer picture of the holy God that we say we proclaim, that we worship. And so Mark's gospel is the shortest. He moves really fast. He has really bad grammar. He uses this word and and immediately, and he just moves from scene to scene to scene. It's a very fast-moving book. Um, and as we saw, Jesus is God in the flesh. We saw that right out of the gate. The sky rips open. I'm going to say this every time we meet as we're going through Mark because you need to know this, that at Jesus' baptism, it's not just Jesus didn't need to be uh, baptized for his sins or anything like that. The sky rips open in Jewish custom. He goes and he goes uh, at the preaching of John the Baptist. Um, John the Baptist was baptizing and calling people to repentance. And Jesus steps in and John says, well, I'm not even worthy to do this. And Jesus says, no, we're going to do this so that all things will be fulfilled. But in Mark's gospel, he uses this word that it actually that the spirit of God comes into Jesus. The sky rips open, schizoed. It's not going back together. God has come down and is in Jesus, and Jesus is God on the loose in creation. And so the early church, and of course church history, starts to use language and tries to articulate this out theologically to talk about God and fully God, fully man. And that is what we see in the early church creeds. That's why we proclaim that Jesus is God and he's fully man. So Jesus is relating to humanity completely in the human state. Um, Mark's gospel, as we've seen, when God is on the loose, people start getting healed. The guy right in chapter one was in the Jewish church, the synagogue, and he cries out and Jesus tells the demon to shut up that was inside the man and he's delivered. We see uh, Peter's mother-in-law getting healed from the fever, which in the ancient world, every type of illness was considered to be thinking that the, the person was having some type of uh, spiritual. It's only in the modern era do we think that the supernatural is weird. Everybody in the ancient world flipped that. There was, no, there was not such a thing as the natural realm. When you study the Enlightenment and we get into the scientific era in the, in, in the last 500 years, um, that's, that's when we start to think very, uh, very logical in the, in the sense of trying to unpack things to talk about the universe being um, a, a closed system that you can do measurements and, and figure things out. Science, by definition, only deals with the stuff after it's already here, right? Science only deals with, with the Legos after the Legos appear. Philosophy, or the idea of trying to understand where stuff comes from uh, on, the, on the front end, goes beyond science. So it doesn't go against science, it just goes beyond it. It doesn't go against reason, it goes beyond reason. And so sometimes when we're thinking in 2019 about you know, science versus faith, um, that's, 
it's, it's, a, it's a false dichotomy. Uh, the world in which we live is pretty mysterious. Has your life been pretty mysterious? The fact that you're here, the fact that like you were born into this world and that you, I mean, you woke, I mean, it's just, that's mysterious to me. Um, Mark is unpacking for us, this is what it looks like when God is on the loose. And uh, it also unpacks to the religious establishment of that day. The Jewish system had the corner on processing a person's sacrifices to God to make them right with God. The Roman Empire was over the system and they banked off of it because they were able to get funds from the temple exchanges and the, and the, and the money exchanges. They were able to profit off of the system. So there was Jewish people called the Sadducees that were in cahoots with the system. They didn't believe in resurrection from the dead and they thought, hey, we're just going to cash in on the system while we can. But they were still faithful, right, to Yahweh, to the God that they claimed uh, that they believed. The Pharisees were a group of Jewish people that were trying to live out the holiness, what they thought was in the first five books of the Bible, Torah. They were trying to live that out based off of a whole bunch of people's interpretations. And so they created all these laws, laws about Sabbath. They created laws about uh, eating with Gentiles, people that were not of the Jewish faith. They created laws about uh, what to eat, what not to eat. And they were interpreting this from the Old Testament. This is the world in which God shown up shows up. This is the world in which Jesus shows up. And this is what it looks like when God is on the loose. Starts to challenge the systems, the political system of Rome and the religious establishment of what they thought the temple represented. And at one point we'll get in Mark where Jesus talks about the temple has shown up. The place in which you become right with God is actually shown up. The place in which you actually make things right with the deity that created everything has shown up. And Jesus is going to be the one that redeems humanity. And uh, Mark plays that out. All the Gospels play this out. And they use different language to talk about this event of Jesus being fully God, fully man. Last week, we, we got through the parable situation. And I know some of you had that foggy look on your face uh, as, we, as we moved through the parables. Jesus talks in riddles. He talks about farmers. He talks about people borrowing, you know, Things in the middle of the night, he talks about seeds growing in the ground. And, and, and so everybody's got these riddles on their face. What is this, what is this religious teacher to saying? But Jesus can't just come out and tell everybody that he's going to the cross. He's still got to build up his disciples. He's got to have the ministry. And so he, every time he heals somebody or delivers somebody, he's saying, don't go tell anybody. Keep it a secret. Keep it a secret. And he talks in these parables and he throws these things down. And those that want to know more will ask more questions. They will seek. But to those that are disinterested or indifferent towards seeking God, they're going to miss it. They're not going to see. They're not going to hear, as Jesus says in the parable of the sower, that it's those that have ears to hear. And so we find out that Jesus is trying to let everybody in on what God's about in his ministry, but you have to have eyes to see and ears to hear. It's not like anything that you've ever seen before. You thought God was going to be like this when God showed up, and then you read Jesus, and you're like, oh, that's what God looks like when God shows up. It's a complete flip, and it still works today, by the way. When you read the text and when you read Jesus, it's still, it's still like, oh, we thought, even in an American version of Jesus, like when you go read Jesus in the Bible, you go, oh, that's, that's what Jesus is like. 
When we get into the text of Beyond the Parables, we saw last week that the disciples are in that storm, and Jesus calms the storm, he's sleeping, and then they are afraid, they're terrified, and they ask the question, who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. So we see Jesus conquering demons, and we see Jesus conquering the natural realm. We see Jesus, uh, this is what God looks like as we uh, redeem broken humanity. So our text today takes a, a little bit of a twist. We're not in Jewish territory anymore. We're actually moving to the people that are not Jewish, the Gentiles, those that the Jews would consider outside the promises of God, which is pretty much, pretty much everybody in this room, I assume, right? Uh, we were, were, were technically all Gentiles. But we're seeing a hint that in Jesus' ministry, as in Isaiah, that God's span or his redemption business, his plan for the world, it, it encompasses all humanity, not just a select group of people. The Jewish people were, were there to be a, uh, they were privileged to be the uh, megaphone to the world, and they kind of dropped the ball on that. Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 1. They came to the other side. So remember, they were just in the boat. They, Jesus calms the storm. That's the context. So this, this whole thing fits together. And Mark's just moving really fast as, as he moves to these different scenes. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, notice the only person Mark says that steps out of the boat is Jesus. Remember, the disciples were in the boat. They're not getting out. They're in Gentile territory. They're not going to even step into this space. In John chapter 4, when Jesus is at the well, he's talking to the Samaritan woman. Remember when the disciples come back? They're like, why is he talking to her? <laughs> and Jesus is breaking through every expectation, every uh, taboo, every social thing to get to people's souls. And so when people that are just indifferent living their life, they don't care about other people, they don't care about their salvation, they don't really care if they die and uh, where they go, they just, they're just indifferent, but they're still good church people. Um, it, it, Jesus has a problem with that. And when you see God show up, he has no problem being contagious in a realm where everybody else is thinking that they're going to catch something. That's good news, by the way, because that's how God sees you and I. God will go after people that would never go after God. And so we need to be people that go after people that church people would never go after. That's why it's good news, by the way. Because the rebels get an invitation to the table. Jesus steps out of the boat. Immediately, he's met, they're, they're met him out of the tombs. So it's a graveyard in Mark's visual. There's this Gentile graveyard. Remember in Leviticus, we don't touch dead corpses. It's unholy to touch dead corpses, which, little, little echo in the text, Jesus becomes a dead corpse. And then Jesus rises and conquers death. So it's an incredible image that God breaks God's own laws to save you and me. This is a God who chases after every person to the point of even conquering death. He's met by the tombs by a man with an unclean spirit. This is in the singular, meaning that there's this, you get this picture that there's just this one demon, just like in chapter 1 with the guy that was in the synagogue. He is possessed. He's got this demon. But this is in the singular, and we're going to see it switch to the plural, that there's actually more going on here than just this one thing inside this guy. This guy, he lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore. Who was trying to bind this guy? 
when you read the text, you ask the question, who was trying to bind this guy? Who was doing that? They were, they were no, no one could bind him anymore. The Greek word is the idea of taming. You don't tame people, you tame animals. Right? So somebody's trying to bind this guy. What's he doing living in the, in the graveyard? No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. They got this guy shackled. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces and no one had the strength to tame him, to subdue him, get him under control. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. In the ancient world, the mountains were a dangerous place. Remember, everything is supernatural in the ancient world. They haven't been enlightened yet. They believe that the mountains, even with David and Goliath, it's geographical issues that are happening there in the stories of which God's going to conquer which God because there's a God that's higher or there's a God that's more uh, ready to, to go to battle. That's why when Israel proclaims, our God is the greatest God. Or our God, there's no one higher than our God. We sing those songs, right? It's from that perspective that this God is above all gods. But they believed that in the ancient world, these spirits were moving in and among graveyards. Obviously, we still kind of have that thought today, right? People almost don't. I mean, we make movies and we, we get kind of interested in that uh, thing. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Okay, so Jesus gets out of the boat. The disciples are nowhere to be found in this story. They're probably still hiding in the boat going, what? What rabbi did we decide to follow? This guy is crazy. Have you ever thought about that? Like, you decide you're going to follow God? You're like, I am going to follow Jesus because I want to go to heaven and I don't want to be evil. So I'm going to follow Jesus. And then you start following Jesus and you're like, whoa, what is this all about? We'll just stay in the boat. <laughs> I'm going to hit pause here and read, read something to you. Most people in Western societies today do not fear the influence of demons. If modern movies and novels are any indication, however, people today do have a sense of foreboding that some supernatural malicious evil is out there that haunts and assaults human beings in a seemingly arbitrary way. All of you movie watchers, sci-fi fans, pay attention to what I'm reading to you. This isn't, this isn't school. I know it sounds weird when you're reading stuff, but... Movie producers and novelists capitalize on this modern uneasiness in their science fiction thrillers and horror tales. In these plots, an insidious alien power bursts on the scene. It usually takes the form of some virtually indestructible being who can metamorphose into any shape and is bent on destroying individuals and eventually the whole world. Other movies have to do with an outbreak of some deadly incurable disease. You guys, you guys this is, right? That strikes fear throughout the region and threatens to devastate it. Still others center on a murderous human monster who has nine lives and comes back in sequel after sequel to savage his victims. The villains are usually dispatched by some violent means or scientific wizard, wizardry, which ends the movie but never completely solves the problem. These cinematic battles that pit the forces of light, so-called, right? Because in movies, right, there's light and darkness, but disconnected, underived from some type of 
deity, which, which that's what those stories are, right? So the so-called light against the so-called forces of darkness shows no knowledge of God's purposes or power to overcome evil and have no awareness of how God works to defeat it. They assume that humans have the power and ingenuity to expel the evil from our midst. But Mark presents a quite different picture of the source of evil and how it is overcome. Evil comes from a demonic power that seizes human beings. It is not something that we can defeat on our own, and it takes a greater supernatural power to vanquish it. And when Jesus, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. It's another scene that we've seen through Mark is that the people, the people are falling on Jesus, the crowds are pressing in on Jesus, and the demons are falling down before Jesus. The people that are oppressed by demons are falling down before Jesus. And Jesus has to have like this, almost like a chemical reaction, right? When, when God shows up, there's this, this immediate reaction from the dark realm that's like, I'm going to engage this. And crying out with a loud voice, the guy that the city couldn't control, that they just decided, well, he's better off left in the tombs. We're just going to shackle him up there because, you know, that guy can't turn around. That, guy, that guy's hopeless. And Jesus shows up, and this guy... Crying out with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? There's a confession from the demon. It's hard to tell, right? This guy's oppressed by these demons. So you've kind of got this mixture between him and the, this voice. I adjure you by God, do not torment me. It's almost like this overlap between what's got a control of this guy and the, own guy, the guy's own personal person. Everybody's tormented this guy. Everybody. And they don't know how to deal with him. They just lock him up. We still do this, by the way. And it makes sense. And I won't go digress into that too far, but we, we still do this. We see people. We don't know what to do with them. We avoid them or we want some power, some authority to deal with them. He calls out Jesus, and if you remember from earlier studies in Mark, is that when, in, in the Jewish mindset, uh, is, is that when you would say someone's name, you have power over them. And so this demon's trying to have power over Jesus by saying his name. This guy's saying, don't torment me. But the spirits kind of are in that same ballpark understanding of not being tormented. For he was saying to them, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So Jesus is talking to this spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? So now Jesus is doing the same thing that the demon was just doing. Having power over the demon. It's, almost, it's more humorous though because Jesus doesn't need to know the demon's name, right? That's, that's kind of, but Mark's telling this story. And Jesus asked him, what is his name? And he replied, my name is Legion for we are many. Legion is a Roman military definition of 6,000 foot soldiers and 120 horsemen. It's a huge army. And this is where the text switches in the Greek to the plural. So you move from this one unclean spirit to this guy is a pandemonium of the world's chaos and the creation groaning. Romans 8, chapter, 20, uh, chapter 8, verse 22, where Paul says that the whole creation cries out for restoration. Because of the sin event, the sin problem that has permeated all of creation. This guy is a microcosm of the chaos that's in the world. 
It's this huge, explosive picture of a person that's got a lot of problems. And he's been oppressed, and his humanity has been stolen from him. My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him. The demons are now begging Jesus not to... There was this idea that demons, they didn't like to just be floating in different places. There's a couple other places in the Gospels where you see Jesus say things like this. But it's, it's actually in that cultural setting. I'm not going to digress into that. But there's this idea that the demons want a home. They want a host. And, and see, we've all been tainted by all the movies we've watched. Because we think, oh, well, this is just completely ridiculous. But the movies came after, by the way. Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Slayer, comes after the stories of the Bible. Okay? This isn't to be ridiculous. This is, some of it's the phenomenological view of the hearer in the, or seer in the first century, the participant actually going out in the world, not having any of these understandings. Some of it is the reality of which the creation functions within this divine, broken creation setting that we all find ourselves still in. We've just learned to name our illnesses. Think about it because then we think we have control of them, right? When you have a sickness and you don't, you got to go to the doctor, you've got to find out how to name that thing. And once they tell you, oh, you have, you know, this word you can't pronounce. And you Google that thing and you're like, oh my goodness, it's got all these symptoms. It's like all these variations. And then when you go get a drug to fix that one thing, it's got a name too. And you're like, oh, I just need some of that, mm, that stuff, which has all those different side effects. And they really don't know how it's going to happen and work in your body. But you think that you've got control over it because you named it. This is more fitting than you actually think it is. This is more connecting than, than we, we let on. They don't want to be sent into the, the, out of the country. They want to stay there in the system. And society's actually okay with this guy being full of this up away from them in the graveyard. There was this great herd of pigs feeding on the hillside. Now, in the Jewish mind, this isn't dealing with the, the Old Testament's understanding of not eating pig. It has more to do with... The Jewish people in the intertestamental period, meaning between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the pagan people would often shove pig flesh into Jewish people's mouths as a form of trying to, and, they, and torture. And so in their mind, their understanding of the people that believed in all these many gods, the Jewish people were oppressed by the pagans. And so here we have this interesting thing that Jesus is in a graveyard, he's with the Gentiles, and now he's around pigs. This is not good for the, the, first, the first year, but there's going to be a twist, right? So the demons are saying, a lot of things moving, a lot of moving parts here. Send us into the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And that word permission in the Greek is actually more like, it's a military term of that he dismissed. Like Jesus has control over this. He dismissed them. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. So they go into the pigs. I know you guys, this is what you really, like Psalm 88. Mark chapter 5. Where are we, what are we doing here? They entered the herd, numbering about 2,000. Well, remember, a legion 6,000 with 120 horsemen. So there's at least, I don't know how many of these things, and I don't know how that ratio really works, Cal, of demons to, you know, number of hosts. But there's 2,000 pigs, and they rush down the steam bank into the sea, and they drown in the sea. Now, we can go to the next slide, Jerry, so we can keep moving here. And I'm just going to say this because in the day in which we live, a lot of people are like, well, that was really rude of you, Jesus, you animal hater. 
Everything that happens violently in this text is because of the demonic or the evil. It is not, Jesus sent him out, sent these out. They went into the pigs. They chose to, to go into the, to the destruction. This isn't Jesus being uh, anti-animal, okay? Um, which there are commentaries that talk about that, and it's silly. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened, okay? 2,000 pigs, that's a lot of uh, money. It's a lot of bacon, <laughs> right? It's a lot of economic value. And the people are now freaking out because the one man that they tried to shackle, and now this other one is showing up and delivering, and now their pigs are dead in this river, sea thing, okay? And Jesus came... To, they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had been legion. He was sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Have you ever met somebody that had a really bad addiction problem? And then you meet them like years later and you're like, whoa, you're completely different. And it's like a shock. I wonder if you had tried to write off somebody like that, you tried, to write, you tried to push them back into a box where you didn't have to deal with them, and then you find out later that they did turn their life around because you had wrote them off saying, those people are irredeemable. Those people are lost causes. We just, we, just, we just write them off. But then you find out later that, no, they weren't lost cause. They were humans created in the image of God, and somebody had the tenacity. Somebody was able to move through the darkness not, not, to be more of a contagion than their contagion, to step into the realm, lead them to wholeness, and then you get convicted because you're like, hmm, maybe the problem was with me, and I didn't do my part. I wrote that person off. They were actually redeemable, which, by the way, the scripture's good news is all people are redeemable. All people have value to God. He was sitting there clothed in his right mind. But they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. There was eyewitnesses to this. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. You already ruined our economics. You already made us feel guilty for this guy that we wrote off. And you know, he was perfectly fine up there by just dying and cutting himself and everything. Just, just leave, Jesus. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. As he was getting into the boat, you know the disciples are like, they're watching this. That's the kind of Bible college they went to, by the way. He got into the boat. The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. He doesn't want to stay there with these town folk. He's in his right mind. He wants to follow Jesus. This is the first time, this is the only time Jesus says, don't follow me. It's weird. But here's the reality is, so keep going, keep going a little bit further. He did not permit him. He told the man, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. What has Jesus been doing the entire time in Mark? Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. But now Jesus is in the Gentile territory. This guy needs to go back. This guy needs to stay where he's at and start a movement within the system that was torturing him. This person doesn't need to be part of the 12. 
So it's kind of a joke there that Jesus tells him not to follow him. He doesn't, I don't really mean that he doesn't want him to follow him, but he wants him to follow him where he needs to be, not get in the boat. Jesus says, go and tell your friends all that has been done for you. And here's a little bit of hint of Mark again. Mark's trying to present to you Jesus so that you respond rejoicing, not rejecting. Mark tells us, Jesus says what the Lord has done for you. There's a hint here. Jesus, again, claiming, uh, Mark's telling us that Jesus is divine. And how he has had mercy on you. If you take notes of anything, if you want to summarize the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's that word mercy right there. Especially Matthew's Gospel. That is, that's what permeates all of God's perspective towards humanity. In verse 20, he went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis, so that region, how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. God will look for people that, people that will never look for God. We want to be people that reflect that kind of pursuit towards other people that the world has written off. We don't want to just shackle people. We don't want to just try to tame them. We don't want to say that they're just, ir, they're ir, you know, can't fix them, that they're too far gone. God can't, get a, can't do something for them. We need to have the perspective that God can do that and that we will be the church, the disciples that get out of a boat. We don't stay and just watch on the sideline and hope that God acts. I hope that Jesus does it all. But we step into people's lives. They're going to be afraid of you because guess what? Every person in their life has been tormented, has tormented them. They're going to be, they're going to say things you don't like. They're going to look the way that you don't think they should. They're going to be crazy. But people without Jesus are crazy, by the way. And then when you get Jesus, you become a different crazy, but it's a good crazy. So get that crazy. Go love people. Let them know how much God has mercy on them and what Jesus is truly about. That psalmist in Psalm 88 where he's crying out and he's thinking God's abandoned him, that's no different than Job. That's no different than you and I in a moment of grief. The reality of the gospel, the good news, that God has shown up. By the way, gospel's after the psalms. That God has shown up is that God has had mercy on you. And as God has demonstrated his love towards us, first, we have the ability to go and demonstrate that love towards humanity. Let's take communion together. I'm going to pray for us real quick. And uh, as we move into these next parts of worship, um, if you would like to partake, you are welcome. The table is open for you to, uh, to partake. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to be people like you. What would Jesus do? We want, when we read about it, we're like, well, that's crazy, Jesus. But we want to be people that have mercy on people that the world has tried to tame. Religion or faith is fine as long as it doesn't mess up our economics. Faith is fine as long as we can stay in a boat. And God, we ask that you would help us not be like that. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, to respond rejoicing, not a silent, indifferent rejecting of you. We pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.